one of the pastors here at Pulpit Rock, and I'm excited to be here this morning as we continue our series, Table Manners. Um, I was just sitting over here admiring this adorable stage set that we have um, for this series. This is Cindy's thing. I don't know if you guys know this. She's the one kind of always working her magic up here. All this stuff she, she takes care of for us. Um, but I love this because she asked um, a few of us women on staff, does anyone have an extra dining room uh, chair that you can bring up for our stage set for this series? And she just wanted each of us to bring one so that it would be kind of this mix-match setup here, which is really perfect uh, for this series, for what we're talking about. Um, so this is my dining chair here, this little mid-century um, with the white seat. Um, our dining table is almost this size. Um, the table looks a little different. It matches the chair, and um, we've got chairs all around ours. And our table sits in our dining room, which is in the very front of our house. It's the first room in our house. And our dining room has this big window um, that overlooks uh, what's across the street from us, which is a beautiful park. Um, I feel really blessed. We have, like, we don't even see homes across the street. It's uh, foothills and the peak. It's really gorgeous. Um, a great view for our dining room. I'm in love with our neighborhood. It was our dream for our family um, years before my husband and I were able to make it a reality. I care deeply about the well-being of our little corner of the world. And one evening this last winter, my family had just sat down for dinner at our, at our dining table in our dining room. Um, there was fresh snow on the ground. It was really dark as it is in the wintertime at 6 p.m. in Colorado. And I should tell you that there had been several instances where the same truck was sighted jumping the curb across our street, um, going into the park and doing donuts in the park. Um, the driver would wait for fresh snow, which I'm sure made this a lot more fun, right? Uh, and would just tear the park up because it was muddy and wet and these deep tracks and I mean just all over the park. Um, and so those of us who live on this block that faces the park, we were kind of like on the lookout. We were going to like try and catch this guy. We didn't want him tearing up our park because we care about this place and we care about the people here. And you know, that makes me want to protect it, right? So what happened next on this evening as my family sat down for a nice dinner I had just made was pure instinct, okay? Um, I did not think about my actions at all. I just acted. We had just sat down. I had just taken the first bite of this delicious chicken I had roasted. When I saw the headlights to the truck bump over the curb right across the street from my house and start doing donuts and just having a great time. And I stood up right away and I said, it's the truck. And my family stood up and looked out the window and they see it too. And then what happened next between my husband and I it was like a movie moment, okay? It was our equivalent of like in the movies, in a musical, when the couple like confesses their love for each other and they break into song, you know? Um, like when I was a kid, I thought, how do they do that? Like it seems spontaneous. Like they didn't say, hey, do you want to sing now? They just started singing and it's like they're making the words up as they go, but they're singing it together and it's this beautiful harmony. And I was like, I guess that just happens once you're really, really in love, right? You can just do that. So this was our equivalent of that because uh, my husband Matt and I were just weird. And we looked at each other and instead of bursting into song, without saying a word, we both sprinted out the front door 
into the dark, into the cold, after this truck. My husband goes straight behind the truck out into the park, and there's kind of only two ways out of our neighborhood. And so I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go this way down the street on the sidewalk, and, and I'll catch the truck on the other end if he doesn't catch it first. And so I'm sprinting down our block. There's about maybe eight or nine homes length here of, um, of sidewalk that face the park. I'm sprinting as fast as I can. It, snow, it, it had snowed, and it's slippery. And so I come off the sidewalk and actually up into the front yards of all these homes just because it's better traction. Um, and, and sprinting at full speed, so is my husband. We're now like 30 or 40 yards apart from each other. And uh, we start shouting out the details of this truck, like now we're detectives. And I say, it's an extended cab! And I'm shouting at him. I can barely even see him out there. Yes! And he shouts back, it's like light tan or silver! And we're still sprinting, and I go, I think it's a 90s Chevy! And then I hear right next to me, that's a Ford. And I'm like, oh, and I was in my neighbor's yard, and he had stepped out on his porch um, for hearing us screaming, hey, Jason, and I keep running. And, and for the first minute, I, I like had a thought about like, wow, we look really crazy right now. But I didn't stop running, but I did continue to think. And I thought, what, what do I think I'm going to do now that someone's watching, like if I do catch this truck? Uh, this is a moving vehicle, and I'm on foot, and it's dark. I'm going to, like, wave him down and be like, excuse me, you know. But I'm still sprinting full speed. I'm having a little bit of doubt. And I think, well, duh. I'm going to jump on the hood of that vehicle and grab the windshield wipers, and maybe I'll break one off and be like, you can't do this. This is my neighborhood. That's what I would do. <laughs> oh. I am very sad to say the truck got away that night, has yet to be caught, and all I have from that incident is a really great story. Um, and I have told it a lot. I'm sorry if you've heard that before. <laughs> but something about this series brought that story to mind. God invites us to his table, his table. But he invites everyone to that table, right? So there will inevitably, inevitably be people at the table that are very different than us. We'll likely be sitting next to someone who values completely different things than we do. Um, we're probably gonna be sitting next to someone who's motivated by very different things than we are. And you know, it's pretty likely we're gonna sit next to someone who sins differently than we do. Yikes, that one's scary. So sometimes we're motivated to protect this table, this community of faith, from those who are just a little too different than us, right? And I hope you can see how that motivation is not inherently wrong. It's just the ways in which we sometimes want to carry that protection out can be. Or maybe efforts to protect this table or to protect ourselves from people that make us uncomfortable or stretch us, maybe that's not what Jesus is asking us to do. Maybe he's asking us, would you just sit down together for a minute? God's table is big enough for all of us. So how do we make it work at the table with people who see the world differently than we do? 
this crazy truck driver in my neighborhood, they probably genuinely think they are doing no harm to anyone by spinning donuts in an empty park at night, right? I will confess, I genuinely think, I think, I am doing no harm to anyone when I pack my purse full of snacks and drinks when my family goes to the movies. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. We need grace for each other, and we need to try to understand each other in order to sit at the table in healthy ways. And beyond that, we need to learn to love each other. As Jonathan said a few weeks ago to kick this series off, the metric that determines whether people really believe we are followers of Jesus or not is our love for each other. Jesus says so himself. We've just got to figure out how to do this, right? That's important. So we're in this series that we think is very helpful to this, where we're looking at nine very different historical figures who are driven by very different motives and values. Um, we've looked at Paul. We've talked about Peter. We talked about Joseph last week. And this week, I'm very excited to bring our first woman to the table. We're going to talk about Rebecca. She said she wanted to sit in my chair. So I told her she could. She probably actually wants to sit over there by her grandson. Joseph is her grandson. I don't want to fall off the stage, though, so I'm going to put that there. Um, and here's the thing. If we're loosely basing these characters on the Enneagram, which you've heard us talk about, which is an incredibly helpful tool uh, for self-awareness and relationships. It's kind of changed my life. If we're loosely basing these characters on Enneagram, then Rebecca would perhaps have been a six, the loyal skeptic. Her motives and values were good and were given to her by God, but those same motives and values were also incomplete, and they became sinful when she twisted and pursued them in unhealthy ways. We are first introduced to Rebecca in Genesis chapter 24. You can turn there if you'd like. Where the story, I think it begins a lot like a fairy tale. Abraham is aging, and he wants to see his, his son Isaac married. So Abraham sends a servant out to find Isaac's bride and bring her back. Now, a quick word of explanation about Abraham. He's the guy God had chosen to be the father of a nation through which God will redeem the world. So obviously his son Isaac is really important to that promise, and therefore this mission is a really important one. Abraham declares to his servant that the same God of heaven who promised this land to his offspring would send an angel to go before him in this search for Isaac's wife. So the servant swears an oath to Abraham that he will go out and find Isaac's wife. And the key idea in this passage, which resides in a single Hebrew word, is first revealed to us in the servant's prayer. Has said. Verse 12 says, Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness, has said, to my master Abraham. Now, this is the NIV version. There's a lot of versions that cite this word as loving kindness. I'm sure you've heard that before. 
Um, that's funny to me because that's, that's really not even a word. It's a mashup of two words, right? Loving kindness. It's like, um, like bromance or like hangry or chillax or something. Um, you know, our English language is, just falls pretty short. Um, many biblical scholars have taken this word, has said, and given their best efforts at defining it um, in our limited language. And to get all those and declare which is most accurate is another sermon entirely that you will likely never hear me preach. Uh, but for today, we're going to go with one scholar's interpretation of this word that I found incredibly moving and very fitting for our character, Rebecca. One commentator described this word as loyal love. Loyal love. Isn't that a beautiful pairing of words? In this passage that introduces us to Rebecca, we see this theme of loyal love displayed again and again from both God's perspective and man's. And if you are familiar with Enneagram enough to know a six or to know that you are a six, then, then you're leaning in here because this resonates. Because loyalty is a key value for people like Rebecca. So let's continue to follow this journey that loyal love will take us on in this story. So Abraham's servant travels back to Abraham's country, goes into a city, finds the spring, and prays to God that he would make Isaac's future wife obvious to him. He asks God that he would know it was her by when he asks her for a drink, she would offer him one, and then she would also offer to water his camels. The Bible says he had not even finished praying this prayer when Rebecca approaches the spring, her jar on her shoulder. The servant rushes over to her and asks her for a drink. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. She's the one. Abraham's servant gathers up gold rings and bracelets that he had brought. He gives them to Rebecca in appreciation. And he asks, is there room at your father's house for me to stay the night tonight? Rebecca again shows her kindness, our first glimpse of her great capacity for loyal love, by offering him not only a place to stay, but also food for the camels. Now maybe Rebecca just really loved camels, but I do suspect that there's more to this. I think Rebecca valued loyalty. I imagine she was seen as reliable, dutiful, responsible, she seems intuitive. She's a willing servant. She's hospitable. When asked for one favor, she goes the extra mile, quickly seeing how else she can help. So the servant is invited to Rebecca's family's home, where he tells them all of his journey, of the oath he swore to Abraham to bring a wife back for Isaac, and of the answer to a very specific prayer that Rebecca was. The servant asks Rebecca's brother Laban if Rebecca will come back with him to meet her brand new God-ordained husband. It was custom in that day for the brother to give the bride away in marriage, so the servant pleads with Laban. Now if you will show kindness, loyal love, and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. In other words, he's like, let's get on with this. Are, are you in or out? 
and there's our theme again. Laban gives the servant permission and blessing to take Rebekah, and the family lets Rebekah weigh in, and she shows a great deal of trust and intuition. And she says, I will go. And maybe she was just swept off her feet, plain and simple. I think most single women would feel pretty flattered at being told, an angel has gone before us and ordained these events. You're an answer to my prayer. Here's a bunch of jewelry. And by the way, my master has a bachelor son. But I think there's more to Rebecca than the fairy tale circumstances. I think she believes that God has spoken to this servant and she values obedience to God's will. She seems secure in leaving her home and family to marry a man she had never met. This is very unpredictable. Who knows what Isaac could be like? But she shows great resolve. She's trusting of others. She trusts herself to step into the unknown. And she begins the trek back to her new life. Our journey with loyal love continues. Rebecca and Isaac have their own movie moment where Isaac goes out into the field one evening to meditate. And just as he looks up to the horizon, Rebecca and the servant are headed his way. She looks up at the same moment they see each other for the first time. They were married, and the Bible tells us that Isaac loved her. We read that Rebecca was a great comfort to Isaac when his mother Sarah dies. A woman who could easily fall into the trap of always looking for environments or circumstances that will reassure her, reassures her husband in the midst of death. Loyal love. She turns to God for counsel when pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She feels the baby writhing in her belly, and she goes to God, and we see angst and worry in Rebecca for the first time. For someone like Rebecca, in a stressful moment, her soul wonders, am I safe? She resists her anxious and busy mind and can then hear the truth that God has a plan not for one baby in her belly, but for two, twins. And this is when she learns something about her sons. God speaks to her, saying that the oldest will serve the youngest. We don't know why this was in the cards for her twins, Jacob and Esau. God often reverses man's natural order. His ways are not our ways. And if we were to break away from Rebecca's story and follow Jacob and Esau's, we would find great spiritual value in this prophecy down the road. But let's stick with Rebecca to see the way in which this prophecy was actually carried out. She delivers the twins, Jacob and Esau. As they grow up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home. And no surprise here, Jacob became Rebecca's favorite, I'm sure for that very reason. And here we see this beautiful representation of loyal love begin to unravel. Something changes, and Rebecca's actions become more reactionary than intuitive, more driven by fear, by wanting to protect the security that she cares about, rather than driven by trust and God's leading. Now, I see how having a child you care deeply about could do that to a woman. I'm a mother. 
The power that has to sometimes control me in negative ways is not lost on me. Uncertainty and insecurity fester in Rebecca when she is not prayerfully and obediently going to God to lead her through it. She trades her God-given intuitiveness for the security of earthly human senses, something unseen and led by faith, for something seen and controlled by physical strength. Uncertain of how or if God will follow through on his promise of Jacob being blessed before Esau, Rebekah manipulates the situation. Her husband Isaac's sight is poor, he's old, and he will be easy to fool. She and Jacob trick Isaac with fur that feels like Esau's skin, food that smells and tastes like Esau's cooking. Rebekah leads Jacob to try to achieve God's blessing by deception without faith. She is loyal, but her loyalty no longer lies in God's love. Her loyalty lies in the security of knowing how things are going to turn out. These two would succeed in their deception, but they would reap hatred and separation. Rebecca never saw her favorite son again as he fled for his life once he was found out. The loyal love Rebecca had, it was her strength when it was aimed at God. It led her to trust in the face of uncertainty, but when she aimed it at her circumstances and her own desires, it led her to fear. And fear led her to, in her own power, build a structure of false security where God's love could not rule. Now, God created Rebecca to long for this. He created her to long for safety and security. And when she allowed herself to be led by God, he provided all kinds of security for her. And she could provide it for others. In his loyal love, God oversaw all the tricky circumstances of the beginning of her story. Abraham's servant could have tried to see that quest through in his own power. He could have failed to ask God for his leading. He could have missed the sign at the spring. Laban, Rebekah's brother, could have said no. Rebekah herself could have shied away from trusting this stranger servant or from trusting her own intuition. Rebecca could have hardened at the death of Isaac's mother. She could have panicked at the babies jostling in her belly. God was deliberately behind the scenes, steering them all through potential hazards and putting all the pieces together. So what happened then when things started to go wrong for Rebecca? Did God just decide to stop steering things? God invites us to journey with him in faith. Unfortunately, faith is not always present in us, or it can get drowned out by fear or stress or in insecurity. And then things can become complicated, and we can twist up this beautiful way that God made us. It's not that God let go of the wheel at that point in her story and stopped steering things. Maybe it's safe to say that at that point, Rebecca has jumped onto the hood of the truck in the park like a crazy woman, right? Like, I don't know anyone like this, but it could be what she was trying to do. Trying to protect the things she cares about. Not trusting God to do that himself. Or not just waiting on him to lead her to a better way. 
Maybe you know someone like Rebecca. Maybe you feel like you are Rebecca. I know I relate to a lot, a lot to her story. Uh, under stress, I can really begin to doubt myself and mistrust others. I find myself wanting to grab a fistful of something physical that I can get a hold of and like wrench it into whatever shape I want it to be in instead of just waiting and trusting God to lead me by faith. I can lose sight of God's loyal love for me and the ways that I can embody that loyal love for those around me at the table. If Rebecca is at your table, and she is, this is what you may notice. I'm going to speculate a little bit, but based on what I see in this story, I suspect that our modern-day Rebecca is someone who has already thought through every possible scenario of every possible circumstance. We need people like this at the table. They are brilliant in a crisis. These are like the women with the gigantic purses that have like everything you could ever need to survive in their purse at all times, you know? I'm not one of those women. I wish I was. I like carry two things in my purse ever at a time. But um, you're kind of in bad luck if you're stuck behind a woman like that. If she's looking for a wallet to pay for something, she's got to like rifle through all her stuff. I have a friend like this. Um, I love her to death. I kid you not, this is a true story. She was rummaging through her purse. It's giant. It's like almost as big as she is one time to look for something. And she pulled out a corn dog that she did not know was in her purse. <laughs> it was from the day before at a baseball game, a corn dog. <laughs> like Paul would have freaked out if he had been there to see that. He probably would have turned the table over. There's all kinds of wrong with that. Peter would have been like, cool, I'm hungry. Do you have any ketchup? Like we should go get lunch after this. She pulls out a corn dog. But if there's an emergency, these are the people that you want, right? If there's a kid who like splits their knee open and we need a Band-Aid or you're in the public restroom and it's really gross and there's no soap and you need anti-back, it's like, here you go. Or you got like a kid who is really hangry and needs a snack immediately. Corn dog. <laughs> I always feel guilty if something like that happens around me because I'm like, I'm not prepared. Do you have a Band-Aid? My kid's bleeding. I'm like, no. Do you have some food? Like, my kid's super hangry and screaming. I'm like, no. If we were going to the movies, there'd be like a burrito in here, but we're not. I don't have anything for you. Oh. All kidding aside, people like Rebecca are beautiful and prepared, and we need them at our table. In them, you'll notice fierce loyalty, especially in secure relationships, loyal love. We all need friends like this. But you may also notice when someone like this is under stress, they can become untrusting, doubting those around them, doubting themselves. The underlying emotion they are trying to avoid is fear, and their besetting sin is anxiety. They live in their heads and can let their thoughts and planning just run away from them. They are tirelessly looking for some kind of structure to hide in, an environment that will reassure them and make them feel safe and secure. Under stress, they can forget that God is good. He will take care of them. So what do the Rebeccas at our table need from us? They need us to take them seriously when they talk about what could go wrong or what they're afraid of. They need encouragement to trust themselves more 
and to take healthy risks, which creates courage. They need people to see their hearts and encourage them that God is ultimately in control, even when things do not work out and what we see is the best way. We can still trust him. We need people like this at the table. We need people who embody loyal love. They can be powerful voices encouraging us to trust God. I have someone like this in my life. She is a gift from God. I want to steal Jesus' nickname for Peter and give it to her because she genuinely is a rock. What do the Rebeccas at our table need to foster for themselves? They need to quiet that anxious, busy mind. Wouldn't we all benefit from that? One way to do this is with scripture memorization. With focused effort, this can be transformative for busy, anxious minds because it anchors them in God's word. Calling the truth of God to memory quiets fears and births courage. Galatians 5, and 23 seems tailor-made for a mind like Rebecca's. The spirit of Christ wants to transform the fruit of anxiety, fear, and mistrust into joy, peace, courage, and the capacity to trust deeply. Another help for a mind like Rebecca's is in the discipline of silence. And that may be incredibly terrifying because silence can be a scary place. In silence, you can't control your environment. In silence, you're forced to face your fears, your doubts, yourself. When I wrestle for moments of silence, my concerns slow down just enough to come up with brand new ones, like a whole new to-do list more thoughts than I know what to do with. But with practice, there's breakthrough from that internal chaos. Author Christopher Hertz writes, at this level, we find ourselves loved to the extent that fear is cast out, so we are free to hear and respond to the risky invitations of God. To hear at this level, we must rest from our striving. We must let go of everything our mind is holding on to in order to receive the revelation that comes from beyond ourselves. All the ancient mystics understood that silence is vital to bringing the fragmented parts of self into a vibrant whole. The 16th century Spanish mystic Saint John of the Cross wrote, silence is God's first language. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I suspect there probably wasn't a lot of silence in Rebecca's life when she shifted from trusting God's loyal love to fearing that God wouldn't deliver on his promise. I imagine those fears were doing most of the talking in her mind, shouting even, drowning out that silence, God's language. In silence, there is an opportunity to let go of the insecurities and the doubts and the fears and the planning, and in the space that is left after those twisted things leave, room for love. Love from God. Love for God. Love from others. Love for others. Love from ourselves. 
love for ourselves. Has said, loyal love. Learning from Rebecca's story, I'd like us to spend a few moments in silence and just see what God might want to say to us. It's okay if it feels weird or awkward. Tension is okay. I'm learning there's a whole lot of Jesus in tension. So let's practice this language of silence for a minute. I'm going to pray for us, and then let's just sit silently for a minute. Let's pray. Jesus, in silence, we wait for you. Would you settle our minds and our hearts? Give us the courage to release all the fears or insecurities or worries or just busyness. Could we let it go? And Jesus, would your spirit come and fill this place and be free to move in every heart in this room? Spirit, would you speak specifically to each one of us? Would we have the courage to hear you in this language of silence?